Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello, a quick advert before the show. My book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, is out now in bookshops and also I will be touring around the UK. In fact, I am touring around the UK at the moment every single day until the 17th of December, so I may well be coming to a town near you. Yes, go and get Robin's book if you haven't already. And if you need any further enticement to do so, this week's episode should serve that purpose. This is a special episode of Book Shambles we recorded live uh, two days before Robin's book came out at the Waterstones in Gower Street, a live event with Robin and Josie. Just the two of them, no guests this week, chatting about Robin's book and the two of them kind of talking about the nature of comedy, really. Thanks, as always, go to our Patreon supporters and welcome to our new Patreon supporters that have joined us in the last week as well. We'll be doing some more behind the scenes and some more book clubs and those sorts of uh, reward tier things very soon. We've been a bit light on them lately. We apologise for that. Uh, Obviously, with Josie being on maternity leave, that has made organising some of those things a little bit more tricky. But we'll be back with all of those very soon. In the meantime, uh, if you're at one of our live events, come up and say hello. We'll be at QED uh, the 12th, 13th and 14th of October, doing a book shambles with Sue Nelson. Uh, We're doing the quiz on the Friday night and then uh, uh, in conversation with uh, Jay Wilgoose from Public Service Broadcasting on the Sunday. Manchester Science Festival on October 22nd. We're going to be there doing a live book shambles. And there are not a great deal of tickets left now for the big uh, launch event for Robin's book on November 1st at King's Place in London. So make sure you get in quick on those. Tickets are only 15 quid and that will get you a £3 discount off the cover price of the book at that event as well, which Robin will be signing, obviously. That noise in the background was just uh, my WhatsApp that I forgot to mute in the studio. So that's a little bonus for everybody as well. And that event on November 1st will be uh, Robin's going to be doing stand-up. Josie's going to be doing some stand-up as well. It might actually be her first uh, stand-up set since uh, she's had her daughter. I'm not sure about that. But it will it'll be one of the first anyway. Uh, Grace Petrie's going to be there doing some songs as well. And then Robin will be in conversation with Philippa Perry, and who, who was uh, one of the interview subjects in the book, and Stuart Lee as well, who wrote the foreword for the book. So go to the King's Place website or the Cosmic Shambles website for tickets for those. And, of course, that's where you can get tickets for this year's Nine Lessons and Carol's shows as well, which are also at King's Place, uh, December 14, 15, 19 and 20. There will be Robin and Josie and Helen Chersky and... Lucy Green and Matt Parker and Lucy Rogers and uh, Joshua Idahan and Matt Watson and Grace Petrie and Andreas Seller and John Butterworth and all sorts of people there. As usual, they are going to be huge nights. Make sure you get your tickets for those. So on to this week's episode now. Hope you enjoy it. Here is Robin and Josie. Go buy Robin's book. 
So that's kind of, again, a lot of what I... Well, I wrote... Oh, Josie, you can... Shall I bring... That? Yeah, come up, because there's... Otherwise, I'll just keep... I've got loads of stupid stories. No, I do need you. I've always needed you, Josie. And uh, so you come and join. Ladies and gentlemen, Josie Long. Yeah. Um... We can use the microphone now. There. It's such there a... we are. Oh, good. I... It's such a pleasure to be here. And, yeah, you truly don't need me, because you obviously... Um, Never stop talking. No, right, well, it, it's it's really interesting, and um, I'm excited to be here to talk to you about your book. I have also just had a baby, so uh, from here upwards, it, it's just white noise. It's just womb sounds. Um, so uh, I'm very much hoping to be uh, reactive. I was I, I um, you you talked about so much already in the introduction, and I think relates to your book. And I sort of see stand up as a curse in some ways. Because I don't know anyone who's loved... She knows my voice. She's sick of it. Yeah. <laughs> At any point you want to break into lullaby, that's fine. We won't explain it for those who hear the recording. It will merely be a moment of the avant-garde. Do you know, this is the first time she's seen me on stage. <laughs> and it's a terrible review. <laughs> um, but yeah, she stand up as a person and something that you can't escape from. There's, I've always had a view of stand-up as like, stand-up is like a born vocation if you love it. Mm. And so I think that like lends itself to people who like to romanticise the idea that there's this one personality type that could do stand-up and therefore, you know, anything that goes with it is the case. But it's not, is it? No, I think, I mean, on, on Saturday when I was doing a gig in Carlisle and having a drink with, with some of the audience afterwards, and one of the people did go, you know, it's, it's very brave, isn't it? I said, no, it's not. Like any, like... Anything like mountaineering and all those things, it's not about bravery, it's about the fact I've got to do it. And I think that, that I, I, I genuinely, I, I think you are a good example, and I think most of the people that we work with quite a lot. It's not like you go, well, when I was about 15, I was thinking of the 12 other jobs that I might do. There's a certain limitation of just going, right, I know I want to create something and stand-up looks like a way of... A, one, it's got a deadline. I probably won't be able to... You know, it's taken me... I mean, that book was a year late. Uh, the And originally about 200,000 words long. And Mike, who's uh, here, was uh, who's the editor, who basically at one point in the... Like, like the movie Jaws, when I delivered the first one, there was that kind of, we're going to need a bigger editor. We need another one as well. How the hell do we hack this thing down? But, I, you know, so I, th I think there is... The, the curse bit is part of what interests me. You said something very interesting uh, a I while did, ago. I did, yes. It was really one of the ones... I'll try and do your voice. I'm not sure if I can. But um, when you were talking about one of the tours that you did and you had a routine which was about an ex-boyfriend and a kind of a breakup oh, that yeah. was a very sad and difficult breakup. Mm. And then one night you started to think, hang on a minute, I'm now happy and I'm with someone else and it's working out and I've found new love. Why am I making myself go through that pain? Why am I returning to that story when everything... And I mean, I sometimes think that as well with... I do... I remember when I first saw Hannah Gats Gatsby doing Nanette mm. and then seeing that she was doing it six months later. And I did have a little bit of worry going, I hope this is the best thing to do because uh, I imagine many of you have seen Nanette, if not live, you may well have seen it on, on Netflix and, and do. It's it's an incredibly powerful... I mean, I left that and, and I, I... It's I a genre-defining thing. It's something that yeah. I think people are going to watch in 10, 20, 30 years and it's still going to feel as exciting. Um, I, used to, I did a show... I followed her show at Melbourne Comedy Festival last year. So that was at the start of its life 
And I would see her afterwards completely and utterly drained mm. from it. Like, just... The, and, the, and the atmosphere of people leaving was like nothing I've ever experienced. It was so intense. And it wasn't just... Like, there were people crying and there were people who were obviously incredibly moved. But it wasn't just the kind of sad atmosphere. It was like... It was thick. It was the thickest mm. atmosphere I've ever encountered. And everyone sort of leaving and people... Like, they'd had some sort of spiritual experience like it was that serious then but yeah i felt like it really affected her and like i think stand-up is really interesting for what it does to the performer insofar as it like it makes you overwrite your genuine memories with a fiction that you then tell yourself every day and it makes you overwrite your genuine feelings sometimes with a different feeling that you're doing so it's sort of like like a schism. Mm. I met some reality TV stars when I did a reality TV show on a desert island. Which, Bear Grylls. The, uh... It was, nobody watched it, which was exactly why I did it, right? Well, it was interesting because I, I was slightly worried when you told me that you were going to do it and you were a little bit worried as well. Just knowing how unpleasant people can be yeah. in social media and stuff. But then, because you actually behaved in a sane and well-thought-out manner, it was a it. very little interest to the editors. <laughs> Look at Josie Long being practical. This is not working for us at all. It was, my dream was to be a quiet background character, and I achieved that dream. <laughs> but I, but the, I, I met some reality TV stars, and it reminded me of performing a bit, because they were talking about the schism between their on screen lives that were still their real relationships and what they kept private and about and I think like that's a bit like stand up is like you are genuinely and truthfully giving of your personal life and of yourself so you're like trying to work out how to do that I'm being far too no I know what you mean but, no, but it is no 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 you, you don't have to it's a conversation I mean, it's not a you know, the, the um but I did I, that's something that I found interesting writing this was trying to work out to minimise the collateral damage. Yeah. Because in, in the first chapter, I mean, this is this is the weird thing, we talked about this before, but the act of writing that book, rather than be some kind of cure for me, even though it's not all about me, I kind of use myself as a, as a springboard and try to use myself as an example and then go into lots of other people's lives, lots of other comedians, neuroscientists, psychologists, therapists, whatever. And, and, and it's actually led to me going into therapy in July because... Uh, I kept interviewing therapists and at the end of it they go have you had therapy? <laughs> and so now I mean today I spent you know another hour with my, my North London Freudian I'm and so, uh, like I'm so proud of you and so glad that you've got into therapy and you guys should all do it <laughs> what I've learned is all my female friends have been through therapy and all my male friends are just starting and it's so exciting anyway, so it's, it's really it what exciting. I found fascinating I'm glad that I've gone with the Freudian because there was one day where I thought <laughs> oh I don't know I don't know where to start and I don't know if there's anything to say and I don't know if it's going to be bored and also the fact that you go and I'm not allowed to make jokes and I'm not allowed to make any any you can't even make small talk. No, I, I, I've done that twice where I can tell that uh, it's like no. Oh, you've got Eli Vissel's night out. That's really great. Oh no, we're not allowed to. Don't look at her. Just lie on the couch. Here we go. And um, one week I thought I don't know where to start with this. But the day before I'd sent her an email about the fact that we might have to change a couple of the appointments to another day. And so I got there and she went, oh, I was very interested yesterday because you sent me that um, email. So I swung around on the couch and went, oh yeah, it's just about. And she went, now this is very interesting. You're sitting up for this bit. And I went, oh, I thought we were just talking about the emails as, an, as a, a pra pragmatic thing, but the emails are part of the therapy. And I went back, you know, that, and it was just, it was really, uh, but yeah, the, the collateral damage thing is, is something that, uh, the, the, the big bit, I suppose, that is, 
Not necessarily that's a major story in the book, but uh, and I've written a little bit. I've, I've been writing more about it recently mm-hmm. anyway, which is I was in a major car crash just before I was three years old. And uh, my mum was then in a coma for quite a while. And when she came out of the coma, she didn't know we were alive, my, myself or my older sisters, because she'd come back out of the coma as a younger person than being a mother. And then there were lots of other things as well that happened after that. And I thought the accident was my fault. So in the actual car, the, it's one of the first very palpable memories I have was, oh, my God, I'm going to be in so much trouble. Uh, my sister's head's cut open. And my mum, who had a very weird moment on um, in Weektown, where the book festival I did on Friday, uh, for the first time ever in my life, I found myself crying on stage, which was really weird. And I wondered if it was because it was a Q&A situation rather than normally talking. But I have this, the solid memory I have is as my sister was crying and she doesn't remember crying. She believes she was in so much shock that she didn't cry. But I remember her crying. But, uh, but, and I was behind a seat looking for this toy gun. And then I remember looking up and my mum was just in the seat like that. And I said, why is mummy's eyes closed? And it was this kind of shock. And, uh, and since I've returned to that, I've realised so many things, hypervigilance and so many of the other things that we dealt with afterwards because my mum was very badly injured and had a lot of effects on, on other things. But then when I wrote the story, I, there was a point where I just drew the line that I could say my truth, yes. but I can't involve... You know, my dad is 88 years old. My mum's along with us, but my dad is 88 years old. And I think even when I handed him the book, I thought, I hope that there's nothing in there that in any way means that he because the accident by the way I'll add as well was no, it was the fault of a driver on the wrong side of the road going at high speed it was nothing to do with anyone in my family and uh, but I thought I, d- I don't want if my sister read the book she lives one of my sisters the one in the, in, who was in the accident lives in Australia and I gave her the book before she and I was like oh my god it's about have you ever had that when your family comes to a stand up show and you think I can reveal a lot of things to total strangers but I know these people yeah. and we'll see each other at Christmas or I think and it's we'll just be cutting that joke out for this performance yeah uh, this performance will be a slightly different performance it reminds me I, I um, Mark Thomas wrote that incredible show about his dad mm. um, called Bravo Figaro and it's beautiful and I think it's was recorded for Radio 4 and I think you can find it anyway and there's a bit in it where he says I don't know whether my siblings would see it like this you'll have to go and see their show yeah <laughs> it's really beautiful um, I but yeah it was an interest incredibly that, that bit responsible of you to do that and I think most people writing don't necessarily take that care but do you think like like that's that's a part of being a writer like I suppose it's quite basic but it's like it's hard sometimes to like Accept that if you tell certain stories, there's collateral damage, and if you tell stories mm. in a certain way, there's collateral damage. And I think it's something that I learned. I remember you used to have a bit where you talked, you named an ex-girlfriend. Yeah, name. I know. And then I changed it to a fictional name, and then I just thought, hang on a minute, I'm not angry, and it's, it's doing very well in a career. And God bless it's her. all, uh, and yeah, there, there were very. It wasn't just there, were, there was a whole series of jokes that were based on overly specific observational comedy involving people in my life and that was in my mid-twenties and then I was like oh these people have new lives and I I, yeah that that's a I mean I think that's it's an interesting uh, Barry Crimmins who the book is dedicated to and I don't know has anyone have any of you seen uh the film Call Me Lucky about Barry's life it's it's a really amazing film and and Barry who I interviewed for the book and then sadly in in the middle of writing the final uh version of the book Barry died and um 
he, you know this story, but it was an incredibly, uh, when he explained how he made his decisions. Now, if you don't know Barry, I'll, I'll give you a few. Uh, I, I won't tell you the full story, but Barry, when he was, he was a child, uh, suffered some, some terrible violence and some really uh, hideous things happened to him as a very little boy. And when he grew up, he always fought for the bullied. He always fought for the oppressed. He was a tremendously powerful voice and often damaging himself through fighting for the rights of whether whether it was uh, women or children or just people who in many different ways had been marginalised by society. And we were talking about ethics. I think it was one of the first interviews I did for the book. And I said, how do you decide? Because I interviewed on ethics, I interviewed Ricky Gervais as well, who I kind of, I disagree with a lot personally on a lot of what he's prepared to say on stage and what I personally would be very uncomfortable with on stage I'm not saying he shouldn't say it but personally I would not I'd, I'd, uh, and then Tim Minchin who has a very well thought out kind of his ideas of the ethics when he wrote Cardinal Pell come home Cardinal Pell he was very worried about that song because he knew that it was kind of naming and shaming but he then also felt what was behind it the systematic abuse into church and then Barry, Barry's the final interview and Barry just told me this story where he said he said, I was doing a gig and uh, I was the last act on and there was this couple in the front row who were just laughing so much. It was so lovely. And it was like, they're, they're, you know, with that bit where they're, they're having too much fun. In fact, it's not having that much fun because other people in the audience are going, well, we're not having as much fun, so we're being ripped off. And, um, and then afterwards he's in the bar and he starts talking to this couple and the couple uh, say, very weird, what's that noise? Tube. Is it? Uh, the, uh, I know that or the apocalypse, but... Yeah. We're, we're, we're in a basement filled with books and wine. It's the apocalypse you've been dreaming of. <laughs> So Barry gets talking to this couple and they said, oh, we loved watching you. It was such great. And he said, I'm really glad. He said, it was really. And then they said this thing. They said, yeah, you see, we don't come out really very much. And he said, oh, would you? He said, well, we only come out once a year. And he said, you only come out once a year? They said, yeah, we, we have a really, uh, a, a severely disabled child. And there's only one person that we can really trust who who knows everything that can, that can be done for for our child and then the first act came on and just kept saying retard this and retard that and then the second act was doing similar stuff and we couldn't settle with that there was something about just the way the words were just being thrown around and and then you came on and very soon we just thought hang on a minute this is someone who's has a different humanity certainly on stage this is not and and we and we just and we have this trust in you. And he just said afterwards, he said, you know, it just made me realise. Said words are shrapnel, and you have to think. I mean, that's the great thing. We hear so much boulder dash, you know, all over social media. Committees are there to offend. Yeah, and you go, yeah. Why is why are the victims uh, of so many edgy comedians' jokes? The people are far more likely to be victims in real life. And I find it so fucking lazy. These these free speech warriors. Who don't, I, I feel we haven't had enough amusing slapstick anti-Semitism. You know all of those kind of things. And um, and so Barry's though his, his kind of uh, his his thoughts on that. I think also made me think when I was writing the book. I have to think about when I'm telling personal stories. At what point do I go? And now that's too much someone else's personal yeah. story, and I stop there. And also it reminds me of uh, Von Aguet quote, which is "You are what you pretend to be, so be, be careful what you pretend to be." Like it. it with stand-up I've always kind of thought of it in those terms like whether or not you're being ironic you are still saying the things you're saying in the tone you're saying them and that is still on some level a literal representative mm. of like going to be taken literally and going to be 
um, treated like that. I was thinking about when I did shows that were very angry and very um, upset and how different that was to perform than when I was trying to do shows that were hopeful and even just choosing where you're going to point yourself and what direction is like so personally different but also different kind of to perform every day. Mm. You do you do a combination of shows that are full of vitriol or shows that are full of joy. Yeah. And do you find that they affect you really deeply and really differently? Yeah, well, I, I find the vitriolic ones harder to do. I do them with Michael Legg, who's over there. And, and the last one we did, when we did one the other week, I couldn't get angry properly because I've spent so long <laughs> practising to be happy on stage. And, and, uh, but after an hour with Michael, it all came back. And uh, the, it was, no, it was that, um, I, I, we talked again, another thing where if you do a happy show where you think, right, here are things about the world that is fantastic. And I think one of the things that changed was seeing the amount of vitriol that is every, because vitriol trends, because vitriol gets viewers. There's so much of it. And I, I thought, well, I think people might be very well, they were already, there's a lot of, of, of you know, angry resources out there. So they, but we talk about this. When you do a happy show, it's made you be happy for an hour and a half or two hours. And then that continues for at least another two hours. And you yeah. think, oh, that's good. That had a good effect. And, and they seemed happy as well. Yes. Well, you feel better that's... about who you are because you know you're kind of reaching for the better parts of yourself. But then the problem is, you know, life is complicated and manifold. And so then you sort of end up people going like, oh. I say no, you're just one dimensional or whatever. But then you want to go, well, it's a good dimension. Well, you, I mean, you, again, I, what I is think. one dimension? That's a line. Yeah. And two dimensions are the. The Flatland Comedy Club. Flatland is available in Dover Thrift Edition for £2.99 upstairs in the science section. But it is that, that I, I, I think also honesty, that bit where, because that's what I love about your shows, is. Uh, is and, and I do think they are, they're like you said about Hannah's show. People get something practical from a lot. And I, and I think that thing of... There's a, a, a story I tell in the book about... I don't think it was you and me and Grace, but uh, our, our friend Grace Petrie, who is a... Uh, well, I mean, she was our friend, but now she's doing arena tours with Frank Turner Frank and Turner. in the Dresden oh, Dolls. So I presume we will no longer be required by that particular <laughs> career socialist. But um, <laughs> doing... Um, <laughs> um, but, but Grace is... Uh, one night, I think it was just me and her, we're doing a gig in Nottingham, and I'd actually noticed there was, there was a woman in the audience who just didn't look happy. Not like they were angry with the show. You know when someone's come along and they're kind of like, they're just, they've got something else on their mind. Sure. And Grace went on and she did some of, you don't know Grace's work, she does, but as well as doing very powerful political songs, she does very powerful songs uh, about emotional experience and uh, about relationships and, and, and specifically from the perspective of, of same-sex relationships. And I think she did Iago that night and uh, I can't remember what else. And then she told me that six months later she did a gig in London and she found a note and it would have been from that woman who's in the audience. And she said, oh, I was at, at your gig and I'm sorry, I was, I was kind of, uh, I, I was in a really bad, I, I shouldn't have even been there. And then I was really glad because I watched you and I suddenly went, oh, oh, I know what's wrong. I'm going out with a guy and actually I'm a lesbian. And it's taken a woman singing about that for me to go, oh, well, now I've heard it in song. Yeah, now I know who I am. And, and I, I think all yeah. major revelations could be done via song. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm going to leave my wife. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so I think that, and there is a power in that. And I've seen that from people when they've, you know, I can't remember the last full length show of yours. I saw probably the one at Soho Theatre, something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's great. But anyway, shall we, we can take some questions from the audience, so if anyone wants to ask anything. I don't know how long we've got.
Yeah. Has anyone, anyone likes it? Yes. Uh, what do you think is the difference between craft and natural wit when you're doing comedy? So if someone's like quite funny in the pub, it might not translate to the stand-up thing, but what, what do you think is the... That's an interesting one, isn't it? The, 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 the question was, what's the difference between craft and natural wit and those kind of moments in the pub oh. that don't translate? So one of the most important ones is when you're in the pub, you're normally with friends who already have a perspective on who you are. Yeah. When you're on stage, you think, hang on a minute, this joke worked with my five friends. Very often the audience, they don't know everything about you. They don't know you. They I mean, haven't been to Sweden with Jeff. Yeah. They've <laughs> <laughs> been to Sweden with Jeff. They get it. But I tell you as well, I think it's something to do with enjoying it because I don't think there are people who are naturals and people who aren't naturals. But I think there are people who, for whatever reason, when they come on stage, they feel more at home. Uh, the normal, like uh, I, I, I think there are some people for whom to be on stage is their least troubled state. Mm. Like, and I've said that about lots of my friends who are comedians. Like, off stage with racks with anxieties and um, stress and self consciousness, whereas on stage you're playing and it is playful. And I think that's what can help kind of plug the gaps between just craft and practice. Um, but I also think, like, it's a bit like being an athlete. Like, you have some people, uh, you know, who train and train and train, and for whatever reason, they're always going to come third. And then you have some people... No, this is a terrible analogy. <laughs> but I feel there's, like, there's something to... No, there isn't. No, there is... Uh, interesting enough, do you know, what we just said is exactly what I was talking about with my therapist today. <laughs> the, uh... Yeah, the fact that there, there is... 45 the, um, the uh, oh, it's the one who can do it for forty five quid. Oh, bloody hell! You can see the big house in North London. The um, <laughs> but it's um, that bit of control, that bit of controlling. Because uh, I thought this weekend I've been quite happy. I've been doing uh, a different book festival every day. There's been lots of people there, and I've had conversations with them afterwards, and I can get a sense that they're pleased with it. And then for two hours on stage or an hour and a half or whatever, you're showing off, and you are in. Even if you're not always in control, but you're in a far greater control. Because like this situation now, we're sat here, you're sat there, you're looking towards us. So we have, we can draw the diagram of where the invasive stare is and all of that. Whereas the moment we walk out of here, there's different people kind of, oh, there's someone over there, there's someone over there. I mean, I you those... don't know why the people might be looking at you over there. Whereas here, most people are looking because they're like, oh, we're engaging in this event. Whereas out there, I could have... Sick on me, baby. Yeah, all the time. Why are they looking? Are they looking? Yeah. The uh, so I think that, but that yeah. That in terms of, and I think a lot of the, I mean, a lot of comics I know are you have a lot of fun in the pub, and it is uh, most of the people I know, most of my friends who are stand ups, um, publicly though we might have bleak conversations, we still like larking about, okay. and we still have that underneath it. But then the moment you're out of that situation it can be but I, th I think so there's no it's not that there's some hard and fast line but one of the things about the translation from the pub to the stage is just about the knowledge of who you're watching but also um, I do think that becoming a stand-up has made me significantly less fun at parties because <laughs> parties used to be like the best stage that I got so I'd be like guys I'm, I'm maybe I was insufferable but I felt like, <laughs> I, I felt like I was I've got fun. to say when you were 19 sometimes you were overly ebullient how dare you <laughs> thank god for the cruelty of others to me down <laughs> um, but yeah no I think it, it takes the edge off people so, someone said that about uh, what's a cheap pronounce it Italian? 
Oh, any way I want. 25 years I've been saying it wrong. Oh, no, I probably said it wrong. No, I said it wrong. No, that wasn't both... me being like... <laughs> oh, now we're looking at each other and I'm paranoid and you're paranoid and we've no, somehow created it. But this is... Um, no, this is... Uh, someone said that... I, I met a bloke who used to tour Jasper Carrot and he said, when we used to go to the folk clubs, it was the funniest journeys. And then he became more and more well-known and then he became a comedian full-time. And he said and it was a much quieter journey. Because, as you were saying, but the one person that I've heard, and it's not going to surprise you, who basically will do three hours on stage and then walk off stage and st- then they go and have a curry and he's still doing blah, 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 blah. it's Billy Connolly the Billy Connolly whatever that fountain is you know I know now it has has you know changed obviously because he's ill but you can still see the playfulness there the and, and that last if you didn't see Billy Connolly's most recent stand-up show is such a masterclass because of course he doesn't move very much he's very very still so when he does move it's a but there's a beautiful moment quite early on he just uh, he goes right I'm just going to deal first of all tell you what's wrong with me because I don't want you symptom spotting throughout the whole show <laughs> and I thought what a beautiful and I think yeah that, that, that humanity he can't he couldn't turn that off He's, he's still got it going. Yeah. Isn't Michael Parkinson a dick? Anyway, that's a separate thing. When he, when he said, he, well, Billy's not the man he was anymore, and blah, blah, blah. And then Billy Connolly said, I goes, because I think Billy Connolly did a joke to Michael Parkinson that basically said, I don't really remember Michael Parkinson. Michael, well, everyone remembers Michael Parkinson. I'm brilliant. And, uh, and uh, so, but I think what happened was, Billy Connolly, when he said this thing about how long have we known each other, was probably a joke. But because he's got Parkinson's, his his face is less, you know, doesn't move as much. So I think because he didn't get that clue. But anyway, I thought it was a ridiculous thing. When we're talking about collateral damage, when we're talking about the limits, to go on to a TV cookery show and start bringing up some supposed mental health of uh, Billy Connolly was a stupid thing to do. I agree. <sighs> Sorry. Any more questions? Has <laughs> anyone? Yeah. Brilliant. That all went very well. <laughs> yes. Yes. Scientists and psychologists and everything. Um, I actually saw your talk at the Gravity Fields Festival. Oh, yeah. Um, with Brian Cox. And um, so, how would you say um, doing all that work with scientists like yours has affected or helped shape your comedy and also your personal life? Um, I think it's kind of the shaping of it is uh, in the last 10 years in particular, it's been just so much more of a feed of ideas. I mean, I'm always interested in stuff and I always like all of the you know people who are incredible I mean basically I'm always the stupidest in the room and that is a good situation to be in in one way sometimes it does damage the ego but uh overall um it's I've just got you know people are talking about so many different things I want to find out about them yeah and I think also it's given me again it's given me a great deal of excitement I think finding out I've often quoted I might have even said it gravity I don't think I did say it gravity feels actually but you know that old bit where Richard Feynman is talking in a chair and he talks about having a friend who's an artist and he says something I don't agree with too well he says I as an artist when I see a flower I see the beauty of the flower but you as a scientist you're picking apart and it becomes a dull thing and I think he's kind of nutty and then he takes on this great journey where he talks about first of all he can see the beauty in the flower even though it's not perhaps quite as refined aesthetically as the way the artist sees it and then he talks about the aesthetic sense of, of different insects and he talks about the molecular structure and at the end he says that's the thing about science it, it does doesn't subtract it only adds so I think if anything it's just given me a much bigger picture like sometimes I get asked by you know you, you, you do these uh, interviews when you're on tour and people go 
So how do you make science funny? And you go, well, science deals with everything in the known universe and conjecture about the unknown universe. So first of all, there's a lot of raw material. That's a good sign. So I think that's, and it has helped me. I, I think the two things that have probably changed me most are the amount of work that I do with uh, scientists. When I say work, by the way, not in the lab work. I mean, literally interrupting them when they've confused everyone too much. And he the tries other... to do the lab work, but he... yeah. you've just ruined the experiment. You've only got one out. Eyebrow again, Robin. <laughs> You're trying to do some lab work again. And, uh, and, and so I think, yeah, the two things are that and, and having a child. And I have an you know, 11-year-old son, of 10, 10 and a half, nearly 11. And those two things, I think, are why my stand-up and what I write about and the things that interest me have changed enormously i'd say the last 12 years hugely. i think i remember I, I can remember the transition as well of like uh, in your work and i feel like it did just give you this focus and this like injection of passion it was like a real kind of yeah like a turbo boost to yeah. your writing and to your performance because i think like yeah there's so much and it's so exciting I I um I got to interview some deep sea biologists and some uh, entomologists, yes, entomologists. And what what I found most wonderful about both of those guys is that their fields are pure and constant, unending discovery. Mm. And that both of them, that both the people I spoke to were like, well, all the people I spoke to were like. I could do this study of insects, for example, for 10 careers and I would never get anywhere near the bottom of this. And I have no cynicism whatsoever in that regard because it's just there's no time for cynicism. It's too exciting. And I feel like as a creative person, it's so easy to be like, well, my own limitations are rubbish and I'm too lazy or bored to do stuff. And then you encounter people who are like, I just get up all day and I discover insect after insect after insect. And it is (laughs) thrilling. And I'll tell you, there are millions more wasps, millions more species of wasps than you thought before. And you're like, well, you shouldn't find any more. (laughs) You don't need any more. And, and I think that for me, it's it's, it's so positive and it's so, um, it so doesn't allow as much for kind of pointless time wasting. Mm. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, I read I, uh, Edward O. Wilson has a new book out, uh, which again I'm sure is available here, The Origin of Creativity, and it's one of those great books where at one moment it's talking about human creativity, and then it goes, but of course what ants do, and it has that great, you know, and it's a really, uh, I, yeah, I find that. That, it, it just gives you more options, I think, as well. It gives you more options in the different ways you can... I think the other thing, actually, that really... Because when we started doing the book club together, what, 13 years ago, probably now, 13, 14 years ago, um, one of the things that also drove me on was I thought there'd been such a rise in very cynical humour and that kind of, you know, a joke's just a joke and, and, and the return and to... As well. Yeah. And and that was and I thought I don't want to be one of those because we've both done those things where you go oh maybe panel shows will improve my career and oh this doesn't fit well does it you know I remember when Stuart Lee did did panel shows please employ me yeah (laughs) but yeah when Stuart did panel shows he was not we both ended up doing one called Never Mind the Full Stops presented by Julian Fellows and filmed in Channel 4's basement and uh, and it was about it was a fun panel show about grammar and accents and I remember them playing this accent and and uh, and I thought and I went so can you name the accent or what are they saying and I went well obviously the accent I, I know the basic area it's from is, is Glasgow but presuming it was more specific that's correct it's Glaswegian bloody hell this is a racist and then uh, and, and wasn't he just saying basically we're going to the pub 
Well done. Because Julian Fellows just heard, yeah, we are. How charming of you. He is a pound. <laughs> I remember Stuart did it. And we'd ring each other up back. And, oh, I wanted that one as well. It was really rubbish. And, the, uh, and, then, there was, and then Julian Fellows would give you, a, as, as a treat, he'd give you a bag of fudge and a thesaurus and dictionary in one volume that he'd signed. Even though I checked and he hadn't written it. But the, uh, it was quite a weird... Um, any other questions? Yes. together and um, Jonathan Holmes said uh, to be a creative or um, it is to be uh, unhappy on some level and then Alex Wilm was asked when was the last time you were upset and he literally couldn't think of any time he'd ever been unhappy in his life and he was like no it's all brilliant we, he's doing an event at the Waterstones on uh, Tottenham Court Road. We should run down there now and start heckling him. And then he, he'll, he'll never feel the benefit of all this joy if he's always joyful. If you were to crush Alex Horn, how would you know? No, no, I, just, I, just, I don't know. I just, it felt like two very different approaches to yeah. comedy. Well, I think, I think creating... People who want to create things, and that also includes, of course, a lot of people who aren't professional. And, you know, one of the things that Josie does is uh, does a lot of work uh, with Arts Emergency, which tries to give lots of opportunities to people who... It's, but I think anyone who wants to create, it does partly mean that you do see the world in a different enough way that you would... You want to express... Yeah. You know, and that's why I think it is true about... I used to sometimes say about the audience that come to my gigs when I was doing my show about... Um, my nerdy show about horror in Edinburgh this year and I'd look at the audience and I'd go, one of the common things that I enjoy about looking at the audience is I can just see that no one in this room has any fond memories of being picked first for games at school. <laughs> and, and I do think that bit of... If you don't fit in immediately, if you, and especially I, I, I look at it now when... Like when boys get to about eight years old, that's when football suddenly becomes important. It's not just kicking around. And you can immediately see some of the kids are going, oh, I have to go in some other direction to find, you know, because if you, you've... So I think that act of a feeling that you're not... And I know that most people... I don't, I don't want to... But, but I think it's... A, if you want to create things, and not everyone... Some people are just happy and, and, and don't want to do it. And some people are unhappy and don't want to do it. But I think it's that sense that, ah, oh, I want to just give... The, I think this is the way the world looks. And I want to express it in that way. So I think that comes into it. Whether it has to mean it's an incredible sadness or just a confusion or just a kind of discombobulation. I think it might be a mix of, of, of everything. But um, I'm very surprised about Alex Horn. He's really let us down. <laughs> Me and my boyfriend keep making jokes that we don't want our child to have enough trauma to want to be a performer. We're like, oh, well, our child's not going to be a stand-up. She won't be traumatised enough. <laughs> and I, I'm trying to kind of broaden out my view of what it could mean to be a creative because uh, yeah like after having been a stand-up for 20 years or so the thing that I now feel is that there's just so many different types of personality that want to do it and that do it and that end up doing it and some people really suit it and some people really don't and some people who are incredibly happy and content and playful do stand-up and some people who are like completely ill suited to it and have ruinous personal lives to stand up and I don't know why they both do it 
But, I yeah. find it weird that people who don't really, don't really, really, really want to be a stand-up. Oh, there yeah. is a kind of career stand-up, and that's not to belittle them, but they, it doesn't mean... As, there was, I remember Milton Jones telling me he was backstage doing some benefit gig, really big benefit gig, you know, some, some huge place. And he said it was really weird because at one point, one of the TV comics went, yeah, I reckon I've got uh, one more tour, and once I've done that, that means I'll have enough money and I can just retire and just stop doing this. Thinking, well, that's part of the whole point of it is there's no retirement. Yeah, you, you, you want to make sure. Can I still bellow and can I still jump up and down when I might need some help in my late seventies? I should have perhaps found a different personality and performance style for longevity. But uh, it's the Hotel California, right? You can think that you've given up stand up, but you can never leave. Yeah, if you've got that sort of curse, that vocation. Well, that's what I found. The year that I kind of took, even the year off from stand up, <laughs> was not really a year off. We made podcasts and I did every benefit gig I was offered and if anyone went could you just turn up here and do this I'd go yeah but it was less Uh, you basically gigged every week I think yeah it was a very poorly thought out (laughs) time. and on stage I think you'd be like well I've given up stand up guys (laughs) see you later (laughs) on stage Um, any other questions yes Book Shambles, actually, what was it? Again, that's over 10 years ago when we started doing a show. Originally, it was called Show and Tell. And Show and Tell was the idea that it was quite... In fact, it was probably 12 years ago, wasn't it? It was, it was a very early podcast. We were very. It was like us and Helen Zaltzman's... Uh, Helen and Ollie uh, mm. did a show called Answer Me This. And, the, and then and Ricky Gervais, but he charged for his. Yeah. And then there was only a few people sort of doing them. And, and so, yeah, Show and Tell was each week a comedian would bring in an object and we would just do a, a, a show and tell. And uh, it was such a strong idea that it was stolen by Channel 4 and made very badly. And that's the worst thing about having your ideas, Nick. Yeah, you wouldn't remember it. They did a show and tell show, but as opposed to ours, which was actually a conversation and someone brings something in, it was someone going, oh, I brought this, which reminds me of my routine. So basically it was having an inanimate object that represented Des O'Connor, and it was just rubbish. Anyway, but, uh, so we did show and tell, and uh, then we did shambles. What was it called then? Utter shambles. Utter shambles. (laughs) Robin and Josie's utter shambles, Josie and Robin's utter shambles. And then it just kind of stopped because the people who made it, we, we made it with the Comedy Channel, and uh, apparently they spent all the budget that they were going to use on uh, our show on some funny beer maps to help promote the channel. And so we were replaced by some cardboard. Fair enough. Uh, those beer maps are number one of the podcast... Uh... Yeah, they are very popular beer maps. And uh, and then basically, and so uh, we kept saying, we've got to do it, we've got to do it. And then we finally got round to it. And with Trent, who's uh, our friend who we worked with for whatever many years, about three years now, we'll be doing it, I think, again. And, uh, and it was just, and when we came back to it, I said, Josie, why don't we, because on show and tell, we very often never even got to the object the person had brought in. So I thought, well, if we actually just slightly give it a parameter, as both of us love reading, why don't we just do it about books? And so I know we still go off on lots of different tangents, kind of things, but, and it also gives a chance, with the number of people that you sit with, and you go, this is bloody brilliant. This is, you know, David McCollman and, and Nick Offerman and uh, Ayabama Adebayo, whose book is amazing, the book about, uh, what's Ayabama Adebayo's book called? Can you remember? It's a Canongate novel, and it's an absolutely fantastic novel, and uh, and I'm sorry that I've forgotten the name, but it's, we, we did one. But you just, and you get these all. And what I like about it most is very often you have people coming in, and uh, if they're on a little bit of the publicity trail, they kind of go, okay, so it's another interview. We're joined by Obama. Now, Obama, you were, of course, born in 1967, but of course it, go, it doesn't start like that. We just go, oh, it's a really brilliant book. By the way, have you seen this thing? It's amazing. And then after about 10 minutes, they go, 
ah, I can talk about whatever the fuck I want. And so we had, who was the guy from... uh, Stay with me, by the way. Stay with me. Thanks very much. That's what Trent does on the thing as well. It's stay with me. We got it. Francisco Cantu. Francisco Cantu, who's written Line Like a River, which again is another phenomenal book. He's uh, from a Mexican background and uh, his mother was a park uh, ranger and he decided he was at university in Washington and he went, you know what, I'm going to become someone who's one of the border patrol, even though it went against a lot of his kind of feelings about what goes on on that border. And it's an incredible over three parts. So yeah, it's, it's also means I've always got excuse. If I'm reading, I am not not relaxing I am doing some work so every book that I read is actually part of my Research. work thank <laughs> you so yeah it kind of came out of that sorry there was one there as well oh, um, which is your favourite Beano comic character <gasps> that's a question for my son who is an enormous fan of uh, the Beano I think um do you know what? I do, because Plug briefly had his own comic and then it didn't really work out, I feel that the fact that, that Plug <laughs> had a solo career that went awry means that I... And I remember the first Plug comic and you got a, that came with a balloon that made a rude noise. It wasn't a full Wookiee cushion. <laughs> they didn't have that kind of money in DC Thompson. But it's a fascinating thing. If, if, if any of you are going to think of buying the new League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Alan Moore, every uh, month, Alan and, and Kevin, have a celebration of some of these cartoonists who very often were underpaid and creating an enormous number of things and and in the one that's talking about oh man it's he only died very recently uh, one of the main Beano writers and, and Alan talks about the fact that DC Thompson was so tight that they had a special little metal thing to put the remnants of your pencil in so you literally had to use it right till the end so yeah it, so if you are thinking about League of Extraordinary Gentlemen which is a fascinating the new series is really fascinating because it's basically Alan and Kevin have decided this is their final comic they're not going to do any more Alan and Tim I think have, have got tired of the way the comic industry is and they only work for the wonderful publisher Knockabout and uh, so uh, it is so it gives Alan more time to finally bother to actually write a novel that's as long as the Bible, as opposed to Jerusalem, which is lazily merely longer than the Old Testament. <laughs> Slacker. <laughs> anyone else? It's been long, isn't it? So uh, that's probably long enough. If anyone else has got it, I'll be over there at the table, and you can buy the book. And if you don't want to buy the book, you can talk to me anyway. And if you don't, you don't have to talk to me. It's not I'm calling out for new friends. I've got three, and it's enough. Um, the uh, this is such a fascinating thing because we kept changing it all the way through to literally I'd be going, I've just found out that one of the pieces of information may well be inaccurate con- to, uh, compared to current psychological research. And uh, Mike, the editor, basically went, you can have that sentence in, but you have to remove one with exactly the same number of syllables. So that's the kind of way that it was up to the wire. Yeah. Um, thanks very much for coming down. This thanks. is the first London book <laughs> Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support on Patreon. Patreon.com slash bookshambles uh, is where you can go and pledge uh, as little as $1 a month if you're not already and you will hear an extended edition of this episode and all the other episodes and lots of other benefits as well. Hopefully we'll see you at some of our live events coming up. 
Uh, hello to the people that come up and said hello to us after the event at the Ilkley Book Festival as well last weekend. It was lovely to meet you all. We'll be back next week with another new episode. Until then, have a good week. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Yeah.